Now, some people will have the neurological profile, the right neurotransmitters to be able to stay in the optimal zone. So, for example, a type 1A or a type 1B, these guys have a higher level of serotonin or GABA, sometimes both, which is good. Now, serotonin and GABA are the neurotransmitter that calm down the nervous system. So that's why a type 1A or a 1B, oftentimes, as, as long as they don't get going, then they almost look lazy, like they don't want to work out, they don't want to train. They, they, they are relaxing, they're chilled, they, they are joking around. But at, when you get, they, they get to training, you're amping up the nervous system, now they become beasts. That was Coach Christian Thibodeau talking about neural-driven athletes, neurotransmitters, and their role in how those athletes might be so different in a resting state versus a workout or competitive state. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBox and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 99. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Today on the show, we have back Coach Christian Thibodeau. He is making his second appearance. His first one was episode 77, where he broke down his neurotypes or the different types of athletes based off of their the, what, what neurotransmitters they seek. And if you haven't caught that episode yet, episode 77, I would definitely recommend checking that out. If you're in a place you can do so, if you're not driving, um, those neurotypes, though, if you are or not, don't remember them, you're not sure of them, here's just a quick summary. Um, the, the 1A is the most neural-driven athlete. Uh, they're, they're entirely neural, not very, muscular, mu not very muscularly operative, very loud uh, type A personalities, and they respond to very heavy weights, uh, high-intensity training. They, don't do, they can easily get overtrained, don't respond to volume well, type 1B. Similar, but has a little bit more work capacity due to acetylcholine. They use the stretch shortening cycle really well. They're t generally the best athletes. They pick up skills extremely well. Uh, so those are the two neural-driven types. The two muscular types, 2A, 2B. 2A has the highest work capacity of the five. Um, they're a little bit of a mix. They're equal, um, equal parts neural and muscular. 
they tend to be people pleasers. Um, the one, the type ones are dopamine seeking. They're they're kind of the heavyweight seeking, thrill seeking. Whereas the type twos are a little more reward seeking. They they seek the rewards and affirmation of other people. They want to be liked. Uh, so the two A is kind of like a little bit more the the class clown type. They they don't have high anxiety because they usually have a good amount of GABA, um, and they are both parts. Again, they're they're kind of equal neural and muscular. The two B is almost all muscular. And they're like the bodybuilders. If you dump too much high-intensity weightlifting or plyometrics or sprint training in their system, they will blow up and get overtrained. And they also have a little higher anxiety because um, they're reward-seeking and don't have as much GABA. Type 3 is kind of like the accountant, <laughs> the distance runner. Um, they generally have the weakest nervous system. They enjoy predictability in their training, uh, and they have very high anxiety. So if you're throwing heavy weights at them, then they might start to cry or those types of things. So uh, that was a quick um, just summary in a nutshell. I don't want to take too much away from the show, but if you didn't get an opportunity to catch the last one, which, again, I would recommend. It's actually our most highly viewed episode on this podcast, and rightly so. It's two hours of pure gold. So if you haven't checked it out, make sure you do that. So anyways, uh, Coach Thibodeau, he is back, and uh, he brings the heat for this hour and a half of just straight fire and he's going to go expand on some of the neurotypes this time talking about performance and peaking and choking and which neurotypes are, are the gamers and which are most likely to respond really well to elite competition high level that that peak competition the season which neurotypes are going to do well at kind of those those league meets those marginal meets but then fizzle um you know how to and then how to address those neurotypes based off neurotransmitters and how to look at how to peak them and how to prepare them for the highest competitions and that's just huge i mean because ultimately you can if you can train well that's awesome but you got to understand how that athlete's mentality and how their brain is going to carry them into the highest meets so coach is going to expand heavily on that it's great stuff he's also going to talk a little bit about how training uh, changes under stress in terms of how that affects the one's neurotype response He's going to talk a little bit about um, coaching and athlete relationships, how the various neurotypes of athletes and coaches could either get along really well or absolutely hate each other, depending on uh, the way that they are programmed based off their brain chemistry. And so I think that obviously, you know, nothing's perfect, but it's nice if I'm a type 1B as a coach and I have uh, athletes who are type 3, knowing what makes them tick is everything. It's just huge stuff. So he's going to get into that towards the back end of the episode. And then it's going to come full circle with talking about why some athletes are able to recover from heavy neural training better than others. And that actually fits exactly into why athletes can peak uh, better than others. And so it's it's just really cool where you can make connections through the brain science. Coach Thibodeau is a master of this stuff. And it's just so great to have someone with Christian Thibodeau's knowledge on this show. I'm thrilled to have him back. Let's get on to episode 99 on optimal peaking, competing, and coaching with Christian Thibodeau. Christian, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks for being here today. Well, it's been great to be here. I mean, last time we had a blast, so hopefully it's going to be at least as good as it was last time. Oh, no doubt. I'm really excited to get to these questions. But uh, I think it's been, shoot, probably about nine months. Uh, anything new in the world of uh, Christian Thibodeau since last time we talked? Well, I would say, well, m- m- traveling, of course, a big thing might be that my wife is pregnant. So that, that, that's kind of a big thing. Uh, I want to say that it's not to brag, but I'm highly skilled because we scored on the first attempt. <laughs> so uh, for my whole life, I mean, we tried to have a kid twice, and both times it works the first time. Uh, sadly, the first time she lost the baby. Uh, so but now everything is good. We are five months in, 
everything's perfect. The, the, the baby seems to be really active, already kicking. So I'm, I'm, I'm already shopping for gymnastic courses, classes for babies, because that's the best way to start a, a kid on training. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's awesome. I don't realize it yet fully. I think I'm the kind of guy who will realize it when I actually hold the baby in my hand. I understand that you had a baby yourself, a, a new one. So uh, have you been sleeping recently? Uh, yeah, actually, almost so well that I feel bad about it, to be completely honest, <laughs> at least right now. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been good so far, though. I uh, was going to say, it sounds like your baby's already doing some gymnastic uh, lessons in your wife's belly. Exactly. Well, she's a former gymnast, so maybe it's genetics. Hopefully, she, the baby has her genetics because if he has mine, then he will have zero coordination. So. <laughs> well, that's, it can't be zero. You, I think you said you were a golfer. You, if you play yeah. golf, you have to have something. I mean, I, I consider myself coordinated and I can't hit a golf ball. To, like, I mean, my, I'm okay. But... If I repeat the same thing over and over and over again, I can get pretty good. And I, I, that's one thing I have. I have great work ethic. I have zero natural skills. I have no coordination, but I'm hard-headed. And when I want to do something, I'm excessive. So when I when I played golf, dude, I, I, I would come to the country club at 5 a.m. I, I would hit balls for about an hour. Then I would play 19. Then at noon, I would have lunch. Then I would practice for an hour, an hour and a half again. Then I would go play 9 in the afternoon. So just like crazy day that was like six days a week. My father was the, the president of the country club and said that was just crazy. But uh, yeah, I, I was able to become decent because uh, I was constantly practicing. My biggest issue as a golfer, and it's funny because it was probably like the, the, the first look into what would become eventually neurotyping. I, I'm a type 2A, as you know, and type 2As, they need variation. Uh, so basically, it, it, things need to be, for us, 2As, interesting. It, it needs to be fun. I need, for, and for me, being fun is I need to work on understanding something. So, for example, I once did gymnastic rings work exclusively for, for about five months because it took me five months to figure out what rings were, were doing on the body and how I could use them. But if I'm doing, let's say, cluster training or I'm doing west side barbell, well, within a month, I have pretty much figured out west side barbell and it's no fun anymore. So I want to change. When I was a golfer, it was the exact same thing. Every month, I would change my swing. We didn't have the internet back then, but I was I was uh, a subscriber to Golf Digest, and every month they would have a frame by frame analysis of like a top ranked golfer, and I would try to copy a swing every month. So every month I was I was trying out a new swing. I was always changing my swing completely. So I was still a decent golfer, but I was really really uh, like all over the place with my swing. So sometimes I might shoot. 90 sometimes i might shoot 72 because i was constantly changing things around so that 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 was the first clue about what was going to be like i need variation i need changes and i i cannot stick to one thing for a long time yeah i wonder speaking of golf too i i wonder if you analyze all the players on the tour i imagine you would definitely see this in the terms of like you know them like the erraticness of their shots like consistency the people mm. who can drive long or their different things. I imagine the neurotype would fit super well into analyzing just like a golfer out on the, the course. Absolutely. Those who have like the pre-shot routines, always just doing the same thing over and over again. Those who are a bit now you don't see it as much because now, especially in the US, it seems like the colleges are basically like robot factories. 
like all the golfers coming out of the, the, the U.S. college programs, like almost all have the, the same swing. Of course, because of body types and leverages, it might not look exactly the same, but the mechanics are pretty much the same. If you compare that to the 60s and 70s, when you had Lee Trevino, you had Chichi Rodriguez, you had Jack Nicklaus, you had Arnold Palmer, uh, C.V. Ballesteros, all of these guys had very distinct swing because they learned mostly by instinct, by practicing. You had some some very technical golfers back then, like Ben Ogan, for example, but most of them were all over the place. So it was much easier to see who was technique-driven, like a type 3, or who was more like uh, of a, like great under pressure, but not so much a great technician, like Arnold Palmer, for example. So, so these guys, it would have been much easier just by looking how they are playing golf, what their nervous system is, uh, their, their neurotyping, neurotype is. Nowadays, you have to look more at how they are reacting after a shot. Uh, are they reacting when they, they, they don't play well? Are they good under pressure? Stuff like that. That would give me a lot more clues about their neurotype. Oh, that's interesting. That's such a cool anecdote, too. I mean, I I like old school sport kind of before yeah. there was like really formal training as much for so many yeah, reasons. Yeah. yeah, one of them is Dude, like I, that. There weren't robots. Some, I have a Jim Brown t-shirt, like a game shirt. I have Bo Jackson game shirt. I have a Dick Butkus game shirt, <laughs> Larry Zonka game shirt. I'm all about old school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, so many. It's just so interesting to observe things before like real formal coaching kind of hits, you know, hit a field just to see how kind of natural rhythms took place and natural technique kind of took place before, like you said, everyone's kind of a robot now coming out the same way. Exactly. No, exactly. It was, it was a lot more instinctive. And of course, like the, the, the true skilled player made it to the top. Whereas today you can actually have someone who's not born with the same neurological advantages uh, and still make it just because they are either working harder than everybody. So for example, take it like a type three, a neurotype three in the 60s would probably not become a great golfer because they would be bad under pressure. They would have lots of anxiety and, and they need to optimize technique to the nth degree, make it everything automatic to avoid that anxiety. So they didn't have the knowledge back then about perfect technique, biomechanics and all that stuff to allow a type three to be like that. Now, to nowadays, technique is so deep technical knowledge for golf and pretty much every skill, it's so profound that you can have someone who has less natural skills, more anxiety, but it can, it can basically compensate by becoming such a technical master, such uh, an automatic golfer or player that they can actually overcome his psychological, neurological shortcomings and still perform pretty well. Yeah, it's that's interesting too. Yeah, like uh, especially... As well, yeah, like the the way the clubs even have changed and all that, yeah, 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 yeah allowing allowing all that to come through. It's so. funny they, they took uh, like a, a well, not today because that was, I saw that like ten years ago, like Fred Couples and plays like they were hitting like the old balls from the like the eighteen hundreds with with the, the the wooden shafted club and all that stuff, and they would barely drive two hundred yards. And we're talking about guys who could drive it like three twenty. Just because of the material nowadays, you, you you have guys who are like eighty years old and they're driving three hundred. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that is changing the game a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's nuts. I haven't been golfing in a while, but that was just something that blew me away. Like how just how much easier that makes. I, I imagine of all sports, that's probably one of the. I mean, 
swimming i work with swimmers a lot too and i mean it's amazing like the records that are are good uh bad or good back in the two, like 2000 and 1990s are, are terrible now and everyone's swimming that and just how some it, sports it, have changed but it's still more it, it's still more sports science and and selection because i mean the water is the same you have some minor differences in how the pools are built uh, of course the the, the, the swimsuit uh, made a big difference but it still comes down mostly to physical improvement and also better selection, like swimmers who are taller, better body types, uh, longer hands, longer uh, feet, for example. So you have better selection process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I forget what I was. I think it was something watching on basketball, too, like just how like long the uh, players' arms in the NBA are getting. Like if your arms if your arms are equal to your height, if your wingspan's equal to height, like you're in big trouble. You have to be like four or five right. inches beyond to even have a chance. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's selection process. And I really believe that that's where the, 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 the old Soviets were such uh, uh, way ahead of us in North America. The true secret of the former Soviet system was not periodization it was not the use of plyometrics it was better selection of the athletes i mean they were doing background checks going back three generations to look at their genetics they would uh, like they would do biopsies to know muscle fiber dominance they, they would evaluate levers and all that stuff they would evaluate their psychological profile and they would put the athlete in the sport they are best designed to perform at now, yeah, I, I like to play hockey. No, 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 you're going to be a shot putter. <laughs> I really like hockey. No, 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 you're going to be a shot putter. You can't do that in North America because it's more of a, like the land of the free and whatnot. But in the, in, <laughs> in, now in China, they can still do it. They can force you to be an Olympic weightlifter even if you want to be a rugby player because otherwise you're going to get shot. Maybe not get shot, but you know what I mean. Uh, so, yeah. so that was the, the real secret uh, of the Soviet system. The, the, the sheer number of potential athletes to choose from, but also the better selection of the athletes and putting them in the sports they are designed to be good at. Yeah, I, I will say, just even uh, in the last few months with my with my older daughter, who's going to be two in July, like just thinking about the neurotyping stuff and what she is and what she likes. And what, it's kind of cool to think of what sports she might like to do just to give her mm -hmm. exposure in those. And I think she'll be a pole vaulter. Like she already knows how to say pole vault. Like she's kind of crazy and <laughs> and loves like a thrill ride. And and I think she's a one B like me. So yeah. I, I'll I'll try to give her some exposure in that when she's ready for it. But it's uh yeah. You have to start for a pole vault. You have to start so young, man. It's it's so much technical. It's so body, so much body control. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. So yeah, she. It's her. I, I'm like, am I a bad parent? Because I take, I put her on like a little half high jump, you know, stick and like pretend like she's pole vaulting and put her in the plant. But I'm like, I'm not trying to like be that parent. I just think it's fun and she likes it. So, <laughs> well, it, the, the goal is a parent, really. It's it, and, it, and of course, I'm not a parent yet, so I'm kind of a an hypocrite for saying that. It, it's you have to put your child in a situation to have as many enjoyable activities as possible. Now, if you understand your typing. Yeah, you know that you will enjoy the type of activities you're naturally designed to do the most. So, of course, I believe that early specialization is a mistake. I believe that a kid needs to be playing as many different sports as possible to have a, a greater, like, motor learning experience, learn more motor patterns and stuff like that, be more balanced and enjoy more sports. But I believe that if you pick sports or activities, that fits that child's profile the best, then they're going to enjoy themselves a lot more. 
So that there is a difference between forcing them to play a sport because you want them to be good in that sport or presenting them with several options to do because you know that they will enjoy these kind of activities. And that's the difference. No, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I see. I could see my, my daughter hating like a, uh, I don't know, she probably would not do good at golf. I, I But I think she would definitely any sort of, sort of like thrill ride sport, I think she would she would be all about. So uh, yeah, it's it's really cool stuff to think about as as uh, as the kids grow up and and all that and uh, yeah. yeah, definitely definitely yeah. With right now, what you said too with the you know not not specializing lots of play, but uh, the the neurotype will dictate what they enjoy doing as they Absolutely. as they grow older. I mean, if you have her do yoga, she's gonna like not really enjoy herself. <laughs> yeah, no, she she would have a hard she would have a really hard time with that. She does try to do handstands every now and then, but that's but it's for about three seconds not a not a yeah but that, that's, that's more help. of the skill component i mean <laughs> from experience i mean walking on her hand she, type one bees are really good at, at anything doing upside down because they have great body control and they want to experience that so it's it's not so much yoga as it is gymnastics for example interesting well, that makes perfect sense yeah she tries to put her foot up feet up on the couch to do a handstand yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah, like, yeah. yeah it's crazy uh all right well hey let's get to the first uh uh full question here in the yeah. in this show and and this is something i was super stoked to talk with you about just because i i i just love the connections like when you can make a connection between psychology and performance and Yep. And looking at that, um, you had mentioned that at some athletes are more prone uh, to choking in their sport or competition uh, than others. So, what what types of uh, neurotypes might that be? And uh, what are some rem- are there remedies by neurotype? Are there some things that might help one neurotype to not choke versus another? Well, well you need to understand why people choke first. Right? Uh, you probably are aware of the uh, inverted U hypothesis of arousal, right? So basically, when your nervous system is not aroused at all, so very low level of excitation, your potential for performance is very low. As the nervous system gets more and more excited, then your potential for performance increases and increases until it reaches its peak performance level. Now, if you keep increasing neural activation even more, performance will not increase further. In fact, it will decrease and decrease and decrease. So it's like a curve. So if you are too low on the activation scale, your performance will suck because you will be lazy, you will be unmotivated, you will not be competitive, your motor coordination will be lower, and your muscle strength will be lower. So as you increase muscle neural activation, as your nervous system becomes more and more and more excited, then what happens is you become a lot more motivated. You are thinking faster. You are reacting faster. You're making connection faster. Your muscles are contracting harder. So that improves performance. But if you keep increasing neural activation even more after that point, thinking faster becomes overthinking. Uh, Increase in muscle contraction becomes muscle tension. Uh, reacting faster become I'm overreacting or reacting too soon or losing my timing. So, so, so and you start to have those experiences where you are in a situation not to perform well. Because if I'm overthinking, then I'm not reacting. So I'm going to freeze or I'm going to have paralysis by analysis when I'm competing. If I have increase in muscle tension, not just muscle strength, increase in muscle tension, my mobility is affected. And especially it affects, especially the flexors. So, so your hip flexor gets tight, 
your 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 pet miner gets tight, your traps get tight. So it changes mechanics. So regardless of what your sport is, tightness will decrease sport performance. Uh, and then when you are overreacting, of course, when you are playing a, a team sport, it will make you make bad decisions on, on the field. So that's why people choke under pressure. It's because high adrenaline situation speed up your nervous system. It excites the nervous system. Basically, you have two neurotransmitters responsible for exciting the nervous system. When I say exciting, I mean the neurons are firing faster, faster and faster and faster and faster. And at first, it increases performance. But if your neurons are firing too fast, you're losing control. You are more tense. You're thinking too fast because your brain is going too fast and you are not in control. Now, dopamine and adrenaline does that. It speeds up your brain. Now, when you are in competitive situation, well, and there is a lot of adrenaline go popping through your veins, then you're going to speed up those neurons a lot more. Now, if you can stay, if you can stay in that optimal state, like at the top of the curve, and you don't overreach, you don't overexcite your nervous system, then you're going to be great under pressure because you can stay in that optimal performance zone. The problem arises when you cannot control yourself, when the nervous system starts to get excited and, and the more adrenaline gets going, the more your nervous system gets on fire and you just can't control it. So you get out of the optimal zone. And from now on, you're losing coordination. The timing is off. You have tension. You overthink. You feel anxious. You feel nauseated. You underperform. Now, some people will have the neurological profile, the right neurotransmitters to be able to stay in the optimal zone. So for example, a type 1A or a type 1B, these guys have a higher level of serotonin or GABA, sometimes both, which is good. Now, serotonin and GABA are the neurotransmitter that calm down the nervous system. So that's why a type 1A or a 1B, oftentimes, as, as long as they don't get going, then they almost look lazy, like they don't want to work out. They don't want to train. They, they, they are relaxing. They're chilled. They, they are joking around. But at, when you get, they, they get to training, you are amping up the nervous system. Now they become beasts. These are also often the athletes that when, the, let's say, they are playing a game that doesn't count or there is very little at stake, they will oftentimes underperform because they are so relaxed. Their nervous system is so good at staying calm that it's hard for them to get amped up enough to be at their optimal level. But when they are in that situation where adrenaline is flowing, it's very important, they will overperform because they have the capacity to stay in that optimal zone because as soon as the brain senses that they are getting out of that zone by overexciting the nervous system, serotonin can bring you back down to a normal level, to the optimal level. Serotonin's function, yes, it inhibits the, the neural activation, so it slows your neurons down, but most importantly, it is a neural balancer. So it balances out your nervous, it keeps your nervous system in the optimal state for the task at hand. So you easily adjust your brain function to what you have to perform. People with high serotonin does that. That's why people with low serotonin they have a really, really hard time adjusting 
when they have a daily activities that require either, either activation or relaxation. So they will get amped up, but then they cannot calm themselves down when they have to relax and do a more of a high concentration task. So, so people with high serotonin, when they are competing, they get amped up, but they stay in that optimal zone. People with low serotonin, they will get amped up just the same, but they cannot prevent excessive activation of the nervous system. They cannot prevent adrenaline from over exciting the neurons, firing so fast that you are thinking too much, paralysis by analysis, you are reacting too soon, your timing is off, and you have a whole body tension which decreases technical efficiency. So that's why some people are more prone to choking. People who have a higher level of serotonin or GABA, type 1A, type 1B, will be the best under pressure. Oftentimes, these guys are underperformers in training, but in competition, they, they overshoot expectations because they are gamers. I had a, a, an Olympic weightlifter, while well, he was a CrossFit guy, who transitioned to Olympic weightlifting. His best snatch was uh, 265 pounds in training. It was like a 180 pounds, maybe a bit less than that. And at his first competition, he actually opened with 285, 20 pounds above his best. Then he hit 295, then he hit 305, which was 40 pounds above his lifetime best. And it was actually not that hard. But that's because that guy is a gamer. In training, he's never like 100% because he has a hard time activating himself. The harder, someone ha the harder time someone has to activate himself during a training session, normally the better they will be when the stakes are very, 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 very high because it means their serotonin is high and they are good at relaxing themselves. Now, people who have serotonin issues or GABA issues, the type 3 and the type 2Bs, will have the hardest time performing in competition because they cannot bring their nervous system back down to the optimal zone. They will get overexcited, which will make them have problems under pressure. The type 2As, the type 2As are a weird animal because they do have a pretty high level of GABA, so they can calm themselves down when the nervous system gets firing so fast, but they are so sensitive to adrenaline that at one point, if the stress or the competition is too intense, they will begin to choke. So you have the 1A and 1Bs who will always overperform in competition. You have the 2Bs and 3s who will have a hard time when the stakes are high. And then you have the type 2As. The type 2As will be at their best when let's say it's like a, a minor competition or a league game, something that has a lot of adrenaline, but not so much. But they're going to have a hard time with national at nationals. They will have a hard time for in the playoffs or the Stanley Cups, for example. When the stakes are really, 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 really high, then they cannot control their because they're so sensitive to adrenaline that if adrenaline is too high, then they, they, they cannot control themselves. But if it's just high enough to get amped up, but not so wide that you're losing control, they can perform. So, so when you're building a team, it's, under, it's important to understand the type of athletes you're dealing with because it's going to affect how you are approaching them, how you are coaching them in those high-stress situations. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, yeah. That's a, 
it's it's really fascinating with thinking about how all that plays into how someone will end up competing and i for some reason i've been thinking a little bit more about it on the dopamine end of things than the serotonin end but maybe that's because i'm a 1b and i was just thinking about dopamine and all that Um, which is important because the dopamine uh, when you are dopamine sensitive when you are very sensitive to dopamine it means that you will get amped up You, you dopamine speeds up your neurons right and and it is released mostly when you want to win you have a desire to win or you are in a pleasurable situation the more sensitive you are the easier it is to get into that optimal zone so it's really both are important dopamine sensitivity or adrenaline sensitivity both of them are important to get you up to that optimal zone as fast as possible serotonin keeps you in that zone so both are important yeah well, speed of the zone too you mentioned this uh with the crossfitter and so this is I mean, this is something that's really interesting to me and I've, I've thought about this a little bit but an athlete who has a hard time training at a high level but they can go and compete at a high level is it a value to try to like amp that athlete up more in the day-to-day training sessions to really like try to bring more out of them or is that just kind of a good i mean is that a fair paradigm for how they'll train and it's just a given they're going to compete better no no you have to you you have to increase their activation you have you, you have to increase their activation because it, it's a mistake to think well okay they, they are lazy in the gym doesn't matter they still outperform everybody i'm gonna i'm gonna leave them at that it's not the great approach because they if they can train at a higher level they will perform better so that's why these guys when they are training and there is like some form of competition mindset in a gym, it really helps them. Look at, for example, Westside Barbell. Westside Barbell, people always say, oh, it's not Westside if it's not at Westside. Because one of the best advantage of the Westside Barbell system is that when you train at Westside, every max effort day is a mini competition. People are trying to destroy their opponents, even though they're their best friends. Uh, so, so they learn to compete. And during those days, these guys perform really, really well because they see that just like a competition. So they get really, really amped up. It was the same thing in in Bulgaria with their Olympic weightlifters where, where they had to hit a certain weight that was selected by Ivana Bajayev on a daily basis. If you don't hit that weight today, you failed and you were in a really, really bad place with the coach. So it was kind of a competition setting. And at once, at once a week, they would actually have a competition simulation. So for a type type 1, especially the 1As, like putting them in more of a competition mindset, even in training, will help. Because these guys can recover from it. Not everybody can recover from that. We're going to talk about that a bit later. But not everybody can recover from training sessions that have a very, very high neurological demand. So that, that's, you, you need to know which athlete you can put into that more of a competitive mindset. Now, you don't necessarily have to put the athletes in a competitive mindset because if you do that too much, you can actually increase the risk of injury, which is not really good. But you can use activation strategy because think about it. The reason why they are performing well in competition it's not because of some magic that happens when you're when they're competing it's simply because the competition speeds up the neurons because it increases dopamine or adrenaline but either way it speeds up their neurons 
when they are in competition. When they are in training, they don't have that same stress, positive stress. So it doesn't increase their neuron speed as much or they underperform. But if you can find a way to increase neural activation at the beginning of the workout, they're still going to have that enhanced performance. That's why a lot of type 1A and 1Bs become addicted to stimulants because stimulants put them artificially in that optimal zone. But that has many, many, many drawbacks. One strategy you can use is to use activation exercises at the beginning of a session. With a 1B, we would use explosive stuff, jumps, throws, medicine ball throws, um, Anything that can be done with violence would work, light Olympic lifts, for example. Anything that can be violent will work because it will amp up the nervous system. With a 1A, since they're built more for strength and power, we would use activities where they can produce lots of force, so for, but, but with zero fatigue. So we could use overcoming isometrics. We could use functional isometrics. We could use heavy prowler pushing for no more than six seconds. We could use for heavy farmer's walk for no more than six seconds. Both of these things are devoid of eccentric, so that it will not have a negative impact on performance if you stay below that six seconds mark. And it's very high force production, so it will speed up those neurons. The overcoming isometrics will have very little fatigue, if any, So it will, but it has a great potentiation effect. So that, that will help a type 1A to get into the zone. So it, it might not be the same as competing, but since it is speeding up the neurons, then it will have a much better performance in training than if they did not have that activation. Yeah, that, that makes me think a little bit about, um, I had asked you this question in the past, I think over email, but I, I, have, I had a swimmer uh, who I was almost 100% sure is a 2A who uh, would swim a 50 free uh, style, a 20-second race at the beginning of a meet in a relay and not swim a very good time. You better and then, yeah, he'd swim a 200 in the middle, uh, which is a minute 40 race. And and then he would uh, swim on a 50 free again at the end. And the 50 free at the end was literally like almost a second faster. I mean, it was like night and day. And uh, so how like this potentiation, so the, the, the type 1s, I think it's a lot of people are pretty straightforward. It's do do high neural stuff, do really, you know, like the heavy uh, the heavy uh, isos or farmer's walks and, and all that. Yeah. But what's uh, what are some pointers for maybe the... the the two end of the spectrum, the three end of the spectrum, and how adrenaline works with that? Well, well, well first of all, the type three, you don't want to activate them. Uh, the type three already have too much neural activation. The type threes, okay, the, the type threes are the anxious people, right? The type threes are the overthinker. They are the routine-based people. They are more introverted. Now, type three, you have to understand why they are like that. A type three is introverted. Because of anxiety. It's a protective mechanism. He's creating a bubble around himself to decrease any potential uh, threatening event or that uh, anything that a type 3 does, it is to reduce his anxiety. That's why they like routine. That's why they don't like variation. They stick to things they know and control and they're good at because it decreases anxiety. Any new thing that they have not mastered or done yet it creates a lot of anxiety. And since their anxiety, when I say anxiety, I don't mean that they feel anxious. But when I say anxiety, I mean the nervous the nervous system is firing too fast. Firing too fast and they are constantly in that sympathetic mode. So they are always thinking, always thinking, creating scenarios in their brain. 
by always analyzing every single detail. So everything they do is a strategy to in, to decrease anxiety. A type three, oftentimes for a coach, is really annoying because he's constantly asking questions. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Why are we doing this this week and last week we did the opposite? It's not because they want to be annoying. It's not because they don't trust you. It's it's a strategy to decrease their anxiety. They need to know every single detail. The more they know about something, the less anxious they are about doing it. So that's why when, let's say, for example, you have them do a power clean, they need to know every single technical element and they need to be reminded, they need to practice it, they need to segment the lift, lots of technical practice because the more they feel like they understand a movement, the less anxiety it creates and the better they feel. And they don't know it because of that, but it's a natural subconscious strategy. Just like uh, that's why they are routine-based. They are always taking the same thing over and over again. Now, since they have that overactivation, they are always in sympathetic mode. That's why they have a harder time sleeping at night. They can switch their brain on off. That's, why, that's what anxiety is. They, they have low serotonin, so when their brain gets going, they cannot calm it down. They have a hard time bringing it down. So the last thing you want at the beginning of a session is to increase activation even more. It's going to kill their capacity to recover. It will increase tightness. It will increase anxiety. They will increase cortisol production. They will underperform. So if anything, a type 3 needs to do parasympathetic work at the beginning of the workout. They need mobility work. They need foam rolling. They need self-myofascial release. They, they might actually have visualization practices. Anything that will actually decrease. They basically, remember the curve, the, the proper activation curve. When you are on the left of the curve, neural activation is low, performance is low. When you're in the middle, performance is really high and nervous system activation is optimal. But if you increase neural activation even more, you decrease. Well, that's on the right of the curve. Well, the, the type 3 are on the right of the curve. They don't need to be brought in, they don't need activation. They need neural relaxation to bring themselves back down to the optimal zone. If they don't get into that optimal zone, they will have more tightness. They risk injuries. And because a type 3 has a higher perception of pain, and the perception of pain they have, it's only because of anxiety. It's a self-protective mechanism. They feel pain more because, because of the anxiety that makes them afraid of getting injured. So that's why they have a higher perception of pain, higher perception of fatigue. So they actually need to get their brain relaxed before training or before competing, listening to classic music, listening to a music they like that is relaxing to get back into that optimal zone, which is the opposite of a type 1 who needs to get amped up before a type 1A might almost get slapped in the face to perform anything that will increase neural activation. Now, a type 2. Type 2B, the type 2B, okay, both type 2s are sensitive to adrenaline. So you, you do need to amp them up slightly because as long as adrenaline is low, their confidence is low. So they, they, they won't be able to perform well. And they do need to get activated, but they don't need a lot necessarily of activation. So a, a type 2A can do pretty much pretty high level of activation because they have the highest tolerance for volume. Now, a type 2A 
they need to do the same work they're going to be doing, but doing more and more to get activated. For example, me, when I'm bench pressing, I'm a 2A. If I'm testing my max, it might take me 20 sets to get to my max. I might go up like in terms of 10 pounds at a shot. Even when I was bench pressing 440, I would do like 135, 185, 225, 245, 265, 285, 305, 325, and so on and so forth. I would do almost 20 sets until I hit my max because that's how a type 2A gets activated. You are gradually amping up your nervous system and you are gaining confidence and getting comfortable with the movement. A type 2B, a type 2B, they are kind of an in-between because if they get activated too much, they don't have the GABA to calm themselves down. So a 2B gets activated, quote unquote, by doing physical activity, but at a very submaximal level. If it were a gym workout, they would do like mind muscle contraction work, an isolation movement focusing on squeezing and recruiting the muscle they're going to be using in a big compound lift of the day. Uh, if it were a sports practice, they, they might practice their, their sports skill at 50, 60, 70% intensity until they feel good. So it's more about feeling good, feeling their body, feeling that their muscles are responding. But if they get overexcited, then they will actually choke under pressure because they don't have the gabble to bring themselves back down. Whereas a type 3, a type 3, it's really more about mobility work, stretching, uh, foam rolling, any kind of uh, self-myofascial release, uh, visualization, uh, technical practice, uh, anything that will calm down the nervous system. So different way of preparing for a workout. I like what you mentioned about the type one, you know, getting someone slapping you in the face. I'm like, yeah. just thinking about, well, if you, t if you slap the type three in the face, or if you He's gave a type cry. one, a, or if you gave a type one, a full rollers to do this before you lift this max weight, it wouldn't turn out so well. Is it like a type three? If you slap them in the face, it will jack their, their anxiety up. And you would act, you can actually visually see their posture changing. The shoulders will go up and forward. Now they, 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 they will have that bend forward. They will the hip flexors will get tightened up. The hamstrings will get tightened up because the anxiety. And that's one thing people don't understand: anxiety, which is nothing more than the nervous system firing too fast. When I say anxiety, I don't mean oh I'm anxious. I mean your nervous system is firing too fast, so you are losing control of your thought process. You're thought you're thinking too fast. You're thinking too much. You cannot shut down your brain. Well, anxiety always need to tight muscles or increasing in muscle tightness, which will change mechanics and increase the risk of injuries. I've, deal, I've dealt with lots of clients. For example, okay, lots of people, you have back pain because your hip flexors are tight. Yeah, but you're not physically active. Like you, yeah, but because you're seated all day, well, your, your hip flexors shorten, get shortened. Well, no, it doesn't. It, it, the real reason, and people are, are misunderstanding what's happening. People who are, let's say, are working a desk job, okay? And working a desk job with lots of anxiety and stressful situation. You are on a deadline. Your boss gets on your back. Uh, it's, it's, it's work you hate doing. Uh, you have problems at home. And because when you're, you're working at your office, and you, you don't have anything to do for an hour, then you're thinking about the bill you have to pay. You think about your, the, your wife. You think about the kids having trouble at school, all that stuff. And really what, what is tightening up the hip flexors most of the time 
is not the seated posture, although that doesn't help. It's the tension. It's the anxiety. It's the stress. Stress tighten up the flexors muscle. So the, those hip flexors get tight because of the anxiety. The best example I can give you. Okay, I, I'm a former Olympic weightlifter. I, I can front squat with three to four plates aside without warming up. Like if I wake up, as soon as I wake up, I can do that. But if I give a, when I give a seminar, at the end of the day, it's absolutely impossible for me to demonstrate a bodyweight squat. I've tried it. My knees hurt. My, my, hip, my, my hip joint hurt. It, it's crazy. And it's only because when I have, I'm presenting, I have quote-unquote anxiety. Not anxiety because I'm stressed. Anxiety is nothing more than the nervous system firing too fast. So when I'm presenting, I'm under high adrenaline. My neurons are firing super fast. And that helps me when I present because I'm making all those connections in my head as I'm presenting. But the downside is that the flexor muscle gets super tight. So when I present, my hip flexor gets tight. If I walk up a flight of stairs, my knees hurt. And my knees never hurt. And my, my, my traps feel on fire. My, my shoulders move forward and my, my, my back minor gets super tight. That's because anxiety increase tightness and affects your muscles. Now, when you have an athlete who will be anxious, these things will happen. So if the flexors are tight and then you're doing, let's say, a squat or Romanian deadlift, well, the chance of hurting your back is pretty high. But it's not because of bad mechanics. It's not bad because you don't know how to squat. It's because the stress creates tightness, which increases the risk of injury. Yes, your hip flexors are tight. But it's not because they are, there's anything mechanically wrong with them. It's because neurologically, the anxiety makes them tight. So you can have them do any corrective exercises you want. It won't fix the problem if, as long as they don't fix anxiety. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, uh, that's. Fa- I think that's um, that's something I've been thinking about too a little bit. Like the people, like oh, sitting is so bad for you, and your your hip flexors get short. But the more I learn about muscles, it's like, well, there's a difference between short and tight. And yeah, they're, and, they're, they are not under tension. Yeah, so, so even though they are short, they're not under tension. So there's no reason why they, become, they would become tight. Yeah, that makes perfect sense with the stress aspect of it all. I, I you were talking too about the feeling and perception of pain and. It brings me to, I think it was like a Z Health seminar. I was in there talking about pain science and, and like how some people can have a perfect MRI and still be in pain and some people can yeah. be just effed up and not feel it. It must be type 1s and type 3s, you know? There must be that big difference between the, yeah. the neurotypes. And the type the type 1s, that's why you have so many type 1 and type 2, type 1A and 1B getting injured, like serious injuries. And you have much less type 3 having serious injuries. And type 2Bs also. The reason is simple. It's not because a type 1A and type 1Bs are more fragile. The reason is that they don't feel pain or very little. They feel their pain perception is very, very, very low. And pain oftentimes acts as uh, prevention, like prevention from serious, something serious. So if you have very small perception of pain, well, you might have, as you mentioned, something messed up and you don't even know there's something wrong. But you're still going to play all out and boom, something snaps. Now, if you are type 3, even like a very small inflammation might feel like full-blown tendonitis. So it's quite possible that your protective mechanisms will kick in. And subconsciously, you just don't push as hard because you don't want to injure yourself. 
So that's why you have so many of these 1A and 1Bs having muscle tears. It's because they are not aware that there's something wrong and something's going to give. Whereas a type 3 and sometimes 2B will know well in advance that something is potentially wrong. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating stuff. It, it certainly explains a lot. Uh, I wanted to move forward into um, – you talked a little bit about people thinking um, that they're a mix of one type or another. Yeah. So I wanted to get to get into that. And, I, and I've had some specific cases of some people who I'm like, man, you train like a type 1. But you know everything I'm seeing from you mentally – uh, or psychologically would indicate a type three. So uh, yeah. could you chat a little bit about um, people who exhibit different types and is it is it possible to be some sort of combination of types or a subtype? Well, that's something I don't dwell into a lot when I give the presentations because understanding neurotyping is already pretty difficult as it is. It's pretty complex. So I don't want to confuse people thinking that, having them think that they might be two types. Well, first of all, you cannot be two types. Okay, you you are your brain chemistry. Uh, what can happen though? What can the only thing that can actually change your neurotype is changing your brain chemistry, decreasing either decreasing some neurotransmitters, decreasing their transport, or decreasing the sensitivity of the neurotransmitters to the neurotransmitters. Of course, the one that is most more likely to to occur is decreasing the level of a neurotransmitter. And it often happens mostly with serotonin and GABA. Uh, when, it, when we're talking about something that is not like related to a physical incident or an injury, right? GABA and serotonin are the two neurotransmitters that calm your brain down. So it keeps you in that optimal functioning state. It also allows you to reduce anxiety. So the less anxiety you have, the more you want variation, the less anxiety you have, uh, the more you want to compete. The less anxiety you have, the more confidence you have. Uh, the, the less anxiety you have, the better perception of yourself you have. The less anxiety you have, uh, the, the less you will crumble under pressure. Now, what can happen is that if because of a life event or a series of event or a certain lifestyle, you deplete your serotonin or GABA. Well, you can go from someone who is very good under pressure and you become bad under pressure because now you, you are depleting the neurotransmitters that are responsible for calming the brain down. I'm going to give my own example. So I, I'm a 2A. So a 2A uh, is adrenaline dominant, but, but he also has high GABA. So he can do pretty well under pressure. Uh, he is not anxious. He is able to function in society. He's actually a pretty fun guy to be around because he's a people pleaser, but he's comfortable being around people, very low anxiety. Now, and I like variety. So people are like that. They love variation. They like to have fun. Their training needs to be fun. Uh, it needs to change all the time. Now, if I diet down, and I'm under lots of stress. Let's say I'm traveling for a series of several seminars and I'm talking about long travel. I'm going to Australia for 20 hours flight. I'm away from home for three months, well, for, for three weeks. Uh, I'm not eating as much. In fact, I was dieting because I was preparing for a photo shoot. So my carbs were low. So all of this decreases serotonin and or GABA the two neurotransmitters responsible for calming my nervous system down, reducing anxiety. So when I'm traveling 
So I'm traveling, I'm always under stress. So what happens is, if I'm always under stress, and me, I'm hyper-responsive to adrenaline. So let's say I'm giving three seminars back to back to back, on top of that, traveling every day, and on the off days, I'm giving private consult to people. So I'm constantly in hyper-sympathetic mode. My brain is always firing on all cylinders. But after the day is over, I need to calm myself down. So I, I rely on constantly using that serotonin or GABA to calm my brain down, to be able to relax after my day or during my day. Now, so if I constantly have to use that serotonin all the time, all the time, all the time, eventually I will deplete it. It decreases. If on top of that I was dieting low carbs, you need carbs to convert tryptophan to serotonin. So low carbs, my serotonin goes down even lower. So I went from a type 2A, which is adrenaline dominant, but has low anxiety because he has enough GABA and serotonin to function properly, to becoming a 2B. Because a 2B is also adrenaline dominant, but they have higher anxiety because their GABA and serotonin levels are lower. So I depleted my GABA and serotonin, which made me a 2B. Ironically, I was training instinctively and I was doing, at the time, I switched my training from Olympic lifting and strength work to purely bodybuilding work. And it was instinctive because that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't have any variation. The more anxiety you have, the less variation you want. So because I depleted my, the neurotransmitters responsible for reducing anxiety, then I became anxious. I became a 2B. I moved to the right of the spectrum. Now, once I got back home, I was eating normally. I went back to being a 2A's. Now, I was sick of bodybuilding training. I needed performance work. And I needed to change my workout every week because my brain got back to where I normally am. So it, what happened is simply that I changed my brain chemistry because of stress. You can, I'm going to get the example of my wife. My wife is a 1B. So she's extremely confident. She's a great natural athlete. She's super explosive. Great stretch reflex. She learns a new skill in second just by looking at someone. Um, and she's very competitive. Now, she had three life-changing events back to back to back. So at first, she had been studying for six years to be a police officer. In, in Quebec, you need to go to college for four years to have a police science degree. Then you can apply to the academy. And then they only select like 50% of the people who graduated. Then once you get into the academy, you're there for four months. And when you get out, you can get an offer, a job offer. But only, it's centralized by the province, only 200 out of 600 would get a job. So it's very high stress. She made it. And then once you get, a, you can apply for a job, you have one year of physical, psychological stress test to do. And it's, it's crazy, right? So she made it through all the process. She was starting to receive job offers. And as soon as she started getting job offers, we changed government and they stopped, they decreased the fundings to the police forces. And they told her, well, you can reapply in two years. So that was like, she's been studying for almost seven years to get that job. She went through all the process, but now she can't do it. So that created a tremendous amount of stress. Then right after, okay, we, uh, uh, I left her because she got depressed. She gained weight. She was already negative. 
But I, I, we got back together like two weeks later. But that was another big stress. And then she fell. Uh, she 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 became pregnant, but she lost the baby after eight weeks. So these stressful situations are causing because they're so intense, right? It's not like just like one burst of stress. It's a stress that sticks with you 24/7. She couldn't sleep. She was constantly thinking about it and basically over amping up her nervous system because of the anxiety. And since then, she started having anxiety attacks, panic attacks. Her confidence decreased. Her competitiveness decreased. That's because she crashed her GABA and serotonin completely. So, so I had her on, on a protocol to increase GABA and serotonin again. And then, boom, no panic attacks, confident, got a new job, everything's great. Now she's pregnant again. So, so, but for a year, her personality completely changed. Now, if you are someone and you're, you're thinking about yourself, for example, okay, well, are you like this? Well, I, I'm like this, but I'm also like this. So, because if you think about yourself, well, you look at not just what you did last week, but pretty much your whole life experience. So sometimes you might have periods in your life where you were under stress and some periods where you were normal. And yes, you could have two neurotypes because you depleted your serotonin or GABA. So that could be one of the reasons. The other reason is socialization. Like uh, a neurotyping in an adult will account for about 70% of their personality. Some people, it would be 80%, but most people would be 70%. The other 30% being life experience, how they were brought up. For example, I had a client um, who was an obvious 1B, but had lots of type 3 traits, which was really baffling to me at first because I just started working with a neurotyping system. I didn't have a full grasp on it yet. So we got to talking, and first of all, it was Asian. And I asked him, well, were you brought up in a traditional Asian family? He said, yes, my, my parents were really strict. So Asian family, you, you don't speak out of terms. You, you respect authority. You respect your parents, your elders. You don't voice your, your concerns. You don't voice your disagreement. You, you stay in your place. Typical type three behavior. So for most of his life, it was, and it was always like from that time to that time, you always do your own work at the same time. You always eat at the same time, always eat with the whole family. So, so he, he was brought up in a very type three family. So his learned behavior, his programmed behavior was that of a type three, but he was a one B because his true nature is a one B. Now these people, when, when it's an extreme like that, like you are, you are really on the left end of the spectrum and you learn to be at the right end of the spectrum, it actually causes tons of inner stress. Because every time you have to make a decision, then you have your, your true personality that wants to go away a certain way and you have your learned behavior that pushes you to go the other way. So every time you have to make those decisions, there's this inner battle, inner stress within you that, that causes a lot of perturbation. Now, at first, might not be a problem, but it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And that could lead to depression. It could lead to even suicide. Like many, many former militaries commit suicide because of that specific issue. Like if a type one gets into the military, the type one expect, well, dude, 
I'm going to be jumping off of planes. I'm going to be shooting the gun. It's going to be awesome, right? They expect ex excitement. Whereas what they are getting is you have to follow the rules. You're always eating, sleeping at the same time. You're always around the same people. You can never voice your disagreement. You always have to follow orders. Very type three behavior. But the militaries are so good at breaking you down that when you, want, sit, when you are in there, well, you are staying a type three because they are making you fit that mold. But as soon as you are released in society, now you have that inner battle showing up because you don't have the structure anymore. So you have to learn behavior from the military and, and you're going to have the, 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 the true person that wants to come out. Now, a lot of the suicide from militaries are from people who have not even seen fire. Well, oftentimes these are the type one, because if you read in the paper, it will never say, well, we saw it coming. He was always by himself. He was really introverted. He was depressed. We knew something was going on. You'll never read that. You will read. We never saw it coming. It was always the life of the party, always the leader, always playing different sports, always having fun, because that's a type one personality. The type one personalities are those who are at the greatest risk when they get into the military because it goes against their true personality and then you destroy their true nature creating a new one what when they are in the military that's fine but once they are released they don't know how to work with it they don't know how to deal with it yeah that's so that would be it would be one idea one example yeah that's fascinating stuff i i mean it's it's really interesting like the difference of like this like the dissociation between your mind and your body the way your body is wired to yeah. act or i guess your subconscious yeah. and your mind it's i never thought but of also, that conflict. Uh, but in, in a specific example you mentioned like really a type 1a and a type 3 are not that far off from a training perspective they, they both prefer very little variation they, they both are somewhat routine-based. They, they both prefer fewer drills. They don't like to have a lot of variation. They, they, so the main, they, they, they need longer rest intervals. The main difference is, the, is in the intensity. But if someone has been doing a sport for 20 years, 10, 10 years, 15 years, then they are fully mastering it. So it could really be a type three, but since he is very comfortable with that limited skill set, then when he is within that skill set, he can train with very high intensity and not break down because the anxiety will be low because he knows about that activity. Or it could be that he is really a type 1A, but he was brought up in a, in a milieu that made him more a type 3. So both, both can be possible. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Christian, you were you were saying something about the like the when you're stressed out, you start training like um, the neurotype below you, kind of. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and it made me think of um, it was in the book Easy Strength. Dan John and Pavel yeah. Satsley were talking about a guy, uh, Tommy Kono, like old old American yeah. weightlifter champion. Do bodybuilding in the off season. Yeah, I did bodybuilding in the off season. It's like I was just thinking like. It's almost like, and that was, all, they were talking about like doing same but different to kind of deload. And so yeah. would it almost be like, you know, if I'm a 1B, I would deload like a 2, train like a 2A to deload. If I'm a 2A, train like a 2B to deload. Would that work or not for every, um, every, every type? Uh, it, it, it actually, yes, that's something I would do. Uh, but it's only, it, it, yeah, it's actually, yes, yes, it, it's something I would do, yes. 
Yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> like a type three. No, no, it, it's something I actually thought about when I, and, and talked about during uh, seminars. Normally, it's a great way to deload, but not like in a traditional, typical deload like that you have like at the end of every training block. Because that, that you don't have the time yet to build enough stress to require such a drastic change. But let's say after a competitive period, after a competitive phase, after a competition, yes, it's something you could do. Yeah. 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 I just thought it was really interesting. I know I'm a one B. I was like playing team sports to kind of deal with stuff with a little more variety and that type of exactly. thing. Exactly. Just do something that that, that is one B to deload. Do some do something not planned that is a physical that that is mostly for fun fun activities for a 1B. Uh, a type 1A doing low volume explosion work would work great. Uh, for a 2B, focusing more on technique and doing technical drills will work great. For a 2As, doing a small amount of bodybuilding work would work great. And for a type 3, they actually deload when they need like a real deload after like a 16 week peaking period, for example, they would actually take a one week rest. The, 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 the type 3 would. Yeah, I was going to say, where does a type 3 go? They, they can't go yeah, they, back up like, to the top or anything they, like they that. <laughs> so for, just for example, like for a, when you look at, like when you're peaking these neurotypes for a competition, you notice that uh, uh, you can use the exact same peaking procedure. Some athletes respond really well to it, some people don't. Uh, it's because, for example, okay, a type 1A and 1B, if you peak them by reducing frequency, it doesn't work. If you peak them by reducing intensity, it doesn't work because they need to get that intense feeling to keep their dopamine up. If they don't get enough frequency during their peak and they don't get enough intensity during their peak, what happens is the dopamine gets lower and lower and lower and lower and it will become much harder for them to get amped up on that competition day. On top of that, they will actually look for uh, eating crap during their peaking week because they don't get a dopamine response from training so they're going to be looking elsewhere to get it they will eat crap some will actually take drugs some will uh, engage in fights or violent behavior some people will do extreme sports i mean i've seen elite athletes uh, get a motorcycle injury the week before an international competition i've seen it that's because they're during their deload they are completely stopping intense training so they need something else to get that dopamine rush uh, so, so they have a problem so with a, with a type 1 for example normally we, we, we do keep a pretty high level of frequency but I'm going to use like neural charge training so neural charge training very short session lasting maybe in the gym 15-25 minutes but all intense stuff to a non-fatiguing level because we don't want to crash our nervous system so it's really more dealing by volume, but meaning intensity. Whereas if you're talking about a type 3, a type 3 will do very well by a traditional taper while they're decreasing frequency, volume, and intensity. Like you're just almost not training for a week, they're going to peak fine because they don't need that dopamine stimulation. They, they have plenty of it. What they need is to reduce anxiety. What they need is to reduce neural activation. So a type three doing a, a recovery week where they do just technical work and lots of uh, body maintenance work will allow them to peak a lot better than if they keep doing intense work over and over and over again. The type two B would be somewhat similar and the type two A would be a lot more like the, the type one. 
Do you think that there's a, a neurotype that stands out as like the hardest to peak or taper that uh, that people often miss, like miss the the peak with? Uh, I will say that, it, it, that both type twos. I mean, the, the 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 type one, even if you don't use the right strategy for peaking, they are so competitive that they, they will still perform pretty well. I'm not saying that they will hit like their peak perfectly, but at least they are still going to be competitive, especially the one A. The one B will be more hit and miss because they 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 are like Formula One racing cars, so they need to be finely tuned. So the one A, the two A's will have it will be much harder. Uh, the type two Bs, while they are just they just suck under pressure. So of <laughs> all the neurotypes, the two Bs are the or those who don't do well in competition settings. From a neurological perspective, it's really hard for them because think about it. Uh, the two types that have a higher level of anxiety, type 2Bs and type 3s. So, and, and if you have too much anxiety, you are outside of the optimal performance zone because the nervous system is firing on all cylinders. Now, the type 2Bs, on top of that, they have low self-esteem and they are self-conscious. And they are building up their own self-esteem by how other people perceive them. So when they are competing, they are putting so much pressure on themselves to perform good because they think, well, if I don't perform well, they're not going to think I'm good enough. So that that kills their self-esteem. So they put even more pressure by themselves to perform well. So they already have that high anxiety. Then they put the, they put a lot of pressure on themselves because of their low self-esteem, which speeds up the neurons even more. So it's it's really hard for them to be able to perform uh, in competition settings. That's why the two Bs are normally the least attractive to competitive uh, individual sports. They are very rarely attracted to that. Oh, the yeah. type three can do well, even if the type three have a high level of anxiety. They, they don't need the admiration of others to feel good about themselves. So they don't put that extra pressure on them. And they can always go back to technical perfection. Type 3, their weapon, what decreases their anxiety is becoming technique masters. And the better they understand the technique, the more they can automatize it. It can actually decrease their anxiety because they can focus so much on the execution rather than the competition itself, and it kind of bypasses the anxiety rise from the competition. Oh, that's so if they're really comfortable, for example, I, I train, uh, I, tr- I work with a, a CrossFit competitor. She went, she's went to the game, and she's a type three. And her biggest problem is always at the CrossFit games. Okay, she she does amazing at regional. She does amazing at regionals. Why? Because the regional, and she does even better at the open. Why? Because the open and regionals almost never, well, they never have like new events. It's always the CrossFit skills that is done in every CrossFit gym and have been done by CrossFit athletes. At the games, a lot of people actually complain that the CrossFit games are not CrossFit because they don't include a lot of traditional CrossFit workouts. So they do lots of uh, stunts, equipment that you don't find in gyms, uh, in CrossFit gyms. And that's why people don't always agree with the selection of, of the exercises. Now, that she always had a hard time at the CrossFit games, even like, getting beat by girls she destroyed regionals. 
The reason is that when she has those new events that she has not practiced and mastered before, she has a really, really hard time adjusting and it kills her performance for the rest of the week because she, she will be anxious all the time because especially since they are not always announced in advance. Now, for regionals, they, they announce the events two weeks in advance or even three weeks in advance so she can practice them. So when she is competing, she is comfortable technique-wise because she has done them, much less anxiety. So a type three, the best way for them to perform well in competition because they have a harder time is to become technique master, master their craft, understand their craft. So that's why a lot of good sport coaches are former type three athletes because they, they learn technique. They, they, they became expert in understanding every detail in the technique of the sport. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I wonder though, too, like if you have a type three coach coaching like type ones, they probably have that oh. propensity to over technicalize and the type one oh, just dude. get frustrated. <laughs> that, that's not going to work. Yeah. A type three coaching a type one, that's a recipe for disaster because type three coaches are over coaching. They are giving you all those details. They're giving you like three feedbacks on every single rep. And the type 1A and 1B, they just want to do it. If you, There's nothing worse than overcoaching in the 1A and 1B. The 1A and 1B, they, they, they want to do things their own way. So tell them, okay, I, I need you to do this. They will figure it out. When you, at first, you might need to give them pointers because they need to learn the proper technique. But don't flood them with coaching cues. It annoys the shit out of them. They, they will lose patience. They lose motivation completely. I always joke around that my wife is naturally good at the Olympic lifts. She could not train for six months, uh, drink wine every day, and when the first day she gets back to the gym, she's going to power clean 165. Now, I, I'm a good Olympic lifting coach. If I coach her on the Olympic lifts, she gets worse because I, I, because of my emotional attachment, attachment to her, I'm going to overcoach her. And as a 1B, she loses motivation completely. They need they need to learn by doing. So if a type three coaches a type one, it's going to be super annoying. <laughs> by the same extent, a type one A coach, and even a one B coach, will have a harder time coaching a type three. Now, because a type one A and one B, they are both pretty much and pretty impatient, and. When the type three is constantly asking them questions, what should I do? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? It, it annoys them. So that relationship is going to be a lot more tense. And oftentimes the type three don't understand why are you asking so many questions because they don't need to ask those questions themselves. So they don't necessarily understand other people. That is especially true for a type one A. One B can have a little more empathy, but they have intellectual empathy here's what i mean okay uh, type two type two individual have the most empathy and that is because what their brain needs is to be respected liked desired loved by other people so at, when they were growing up to know that someone liked them they learn to rely on nonverbal cues, reading body language, stuff like that. Because they have a lower self-esteem, they did not believe when someone was giving them a compliment. 
So they learn to rely solely on body language. So type twos, instinctively, by looking at someone, they know how they feel. So that's why they are empathetic. It's not because I'm a good guy. It's because my brain needs to feel loved. So I'm good at looking at you to see if you love me or not. By extension, I became good at reading your emotions and knowing how you feel. That's why a type two is more empathetic. A type one has a much higher level of self-confidence and self-esteem. He does not need to know that other people think they're good to feel good about themselves. So they did not need to develop that capacity from a young age to read people nonverbal. It's even worse with a type 1A. 1A oftentimes will not be capable of seeing the second degree. They take everything literally because they don't read body language at all. Now, the 1B, they can become good because of their high acetylcholine level. The main difference between a 1A and 1B is the acetylcholine level. Now, do you know about the, the, the mirror neurons? I've heard about it. I, I couldn't describe them too well, though. So, so the, the mirror neurons were, were, are, are neurons that are responsible for learning by modelization. Basically, the, the way they, descri- they, they, they discovered them is they had a, a monkey eat a banana because they, they were studying which region of the brain were, were responsible for looking at the banana, holding it, eating it, tasting it, whatnot. So different phases, they would look at which part of the brain would, would, would lit up. Now, they, they took the experiment one step further. So they, they, they had a second monkey just look at the first monkey and also had those electrodes on his brain. In his brain. And he could, they could see that when the monkey was looking at the one eating the banana, the same zones were, would lit up in his brain plus another zone, which was a motor neuron, the mirror neurons. The mirror neurons are responsible for lighting up the zones of your brain that are responsible for what the person in front of you is doing. So when someone is great at learning by looking at a gesture or feeling a movement, that's because their mirror neurons are, are well-developed. Now, the acetylcholine plays a huge role in the efficacy of the mirror neurons. So someone with high acetylcholine, like a 1B and some 2As, will be great at knowing what's going on when I'm looking at someone. It's not emotional empathy. It's not, I want you to like me, so I became great at reading if you like me or not, or reading your feelings. It's intellectual empathy. I'm looking at you, and I know what's going on. But it's not from an emotional standpoint. It's more an intellectual standpoint. So as a coach, the 1B can still have some technical empathy there know when an athlete has been doing too much work uh, when an athlete has something going wrong with them they, they can do that so they, they can actually work with a type three but eventually they will lose patience but a type one don't want to work with a type three because they don't have any empathy or a type 2b that always talk about their emotions talk about well my boyfriend left me and I, i'm at a hard time with school uh, my parents just just got divorced a type 1A has no patience for that. He doesn't have any empathy. But a type 1B can intellectualize the process. He can see that there is something wrong with his athlete. He does not feel what his athlete is feeling. He does not have emotional empathy. But they understand something is wrong and that something needs to be done because of their mirror neurons. Now, these coaches, that's why 1Bs can be great at 
correcting technique. They're not as good as the type three to understand every little like little detail about technique. The one Bs understand movement. They will look at a movement. If they know the movement, they know what's wrong. They can't always explain it from a biomechanical standpoint where you need to be at 15 degrees, not 12 degrees. But their mirror neurons are so sensitive that they can actually feel if the movement they're looking at is good or not. The only thing is that they need to have done that exercise at the high level themselves to know that there's something wrong. Because if I, let's say, for example, let's take a power clean. If I done, I've done power cleans for many, many, many years of my life, I know how they're done. I know how they should be feeling. I have coached many people, so I know how a power clean should feel. And if I have high acetylcholine and I'm looking at someone doing a power clean, I can actually almost feel it in my body because the acetylcholine will trigger the mirror neurons that will actually light up the zones of my brain that would light up if I were doing a power clean. So when I'm looking at someone and it does not feel the same way it did, like when I did a power clean, I know there's something wrong. See what I mean? Oh, so absolutely. that's why when you have acetylcholine, you can have like very, very instinctive knowledge of how to coach a movement. Like you, you know how to coach it. You know what needs to be changed. You, could, you can't always put it into technical words. Whereas a type 3 will look at a movement from a purely intellectual, technical standpoint. Because they, they don't have that empathy. They don't have that, I'm looking at it, that, that feeling. They need to intellectualize the process to be able to explain it. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, I, I can't agree more with that. It makes all these dots just connect for me as a 1B. Like, I mean, I've always been pretty good at coaching movement, but I, I, I'm i always thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, you know, coaches need to just, you know, be training the sport they're coaching more often or, or yeah. and which is totally true. But I think especially in light of what you said, just even more critically so for that, that 1B and, and Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I'm okay. I, I uh, CrossFit people in, in Quebec or Canada, they come to me more than they come to a real Olympic lifting coach who has done exclusively Olympic weightlifting because my greatest skill set is that I can just look at a movement and feel what's wrong. Now, I've always, people don't believe me, but if, I, if I'm training a client and they are doing a lat pull down, I can, my, my own lats will actually get pumped. <laughs> it's not some freaky out of, the, out of this world like, uh, mystical experience. It's simply that my mirror neurons are so effective that when I'm looking at something, someone doing a movement I have had lots of experience with, it, it lights up the zones in my brain that activate that muscle and it actually gets activated so I can feel it. So, and so when I'm coaching someone doing Olympic lifts, I always know what the problem is, even though I can't always explain it. Now, I cannot I'm not good at the biomechanics of the Olympic lifts. I mean, I don't know what, if your knees have to be that position, but when I'm looking at a movement, I know there's something wrong, and here's what you need to do to feel it properly. That's why when I coach the Olympic lifts, I always co use a, a feeling approach. So I always start with a very segmented exercise to make the client feel the right thing to do on the Olympic lift. 
And as they are come getting more automatic with that feeling, then I'm increasing the range of motion of the movement, making it more complete or more complex, but still trying to copy the feeling, the experiment and experience with the smaller exercise. And once they get uh, efficient at feeling it properly in that longer movement, then I make it even more complex, still trying to get that exact same feeling. So I always coach by feeling because me, it's all about feeling the movement. I could not explain biomechanically what goes on in a power clean. I couldn't because me, I'm on top of having high, uh, because I, I'm, I'm a type two. So I, I, I read non-verbal cues really, really well, read body language, know what someone is feeling and, and think about. I also have a good level of acetyl choline, which is why I was a pretty good explosive Olympic weightlifter. So these two skill set made me very, very good at being able to see what's wrong and feel what's wrong, even though I can't always explain it. Yeah, that's just such a, I, I feel like a whole, you could probably write a whole book on that just for coaches and coaching that even, yeah. um, that uh, that's just, that's so fan. That's, uh, that's just really interesting stuff. I, I would love to talk more about it. I got uh, one more question for you though, Christian yep. today. I know it wanted to get to this, but, uh, uh, why are some people able to better recover from heavy strength work or workouts with a high neuro demand like plyometrics okay. than others? Well, it, it, it goes with the same for the same reason as why some people are better at, at, at performing under pressure and some people are more prone to choking. It's the exact same capacity. Like being able to recover fast from a neurological workout and being able to perform in competition is the same neurological quote-unquote skill as being able to perform under pressure. Uh, because in both cases, it's simply a matter of how fast or how efficiently, sorry, you can bring your nervous system down. Uh, as I explained, the reason why more, when some people, why some people choke under pressure is because they get overexcited. The nervous system fires too fast. And because it's fired too fast, they start overthinking. They have more muscle tension. Reaction is too fast. They lose their coordination and timing. That's what makes people choke. Now, what they need is to calm down the nervous system when it gets, it gets overexcited, which requires serotonin or GABA. Now, what happens when you do a neurological workout, either explosive work like plyometrics, like Olympic lifts, like sprinting, or very heavy work while well, you amp up your nervous system? It's called neurological activation. The more force you have to produce, the more... And you, the more you amp up your neurons, your nervous system, the, the faster your neurons will fire. So that's why when you do heavy work, explosive work, you, you, normally your performance increases throughout the workout because you're speeding up your nervous system, speeding it up, speeding it up. So at the end of the workout, your nervous system is firing on all cylinders, right? Now, at the end of the workout, what happens is if I cannot calm down my nervous system, what happens if my nervous system keeps firing on all cylinders for a few hours. When I'm going to drain my nervous system, I'm utilizing a lot of resources, right? Because I'm constantly having it fire fast. So I'm either depleting dopamine because it keeps firing and firing and firing, or I'm producing a lot more cortisol because I'm staying in that sympathetic state. So if my neurons keeps firing on all cylinders for hours after the workout, then it's really hard for me to recover. Because cortisol gets elevated, because I cannot 
put myself in rest and recover mode and because I'm utilizing a lot more energy with my brain. I could even deplete some neurotransmitters. Now, if I have a lot of serotonin or GABA, well, as soon as the workout is over, I can actually bring my brain down, calm my brain down. So now I don't fatigue my nervous system for four or five hours after the workout. As soon as the workout is over, I can enter that rest and recover mode. It's funny, I was talking to a, a friend of mine. She owns a gym in Ohio, and she trains a lot of high-level athletes. And I was talking to her about that exactly, and she mentioned that, well, when I lift super heavy, I, couldn't, I can easily get a nap 15 minutes later. That indicates that the, she is amazing at calming her nervous system down after a very intense neurological workout. So that person can actually lift heavy very often because heavy uh, neurological work does not create that much muscular fatigue. The only problem with neurological work is CNS recovery. But if you have the neural, neurology to calm your brain down really, really, really fast, after a session, you can do those sessions really fast, really, really frequently. That's why Bulgarian lifters can train heavy so often, because through a selection process, only the athletes who have the brain chemistry to calm their brain down immediately after a session survive. Bulgarian lifters were reported to often take naps right after a max back squat session. That's because they can calm their nervous system down. Now, people who can't do that, they stay amped up for a long time after the workout. They will have a much higher cortisol level, and they cannot enter rest and recover mode. They can't train heavy as often. Now, as you can see, it requires the same brain chemistry as being able to calm yourself down when you get overexcited during competition. So that's why an athlete who can train heavy often and, and recover really well from that from a, a, a brain chemical standpoint, will be able to perform a lot better under pressure. Someone who needs a lot of rest days after a neurological session, these people normally will have a harder time maintaining peak performance under pressure. Yeah, so it's it's not really so much the work itself, it's just the ability to come down from it and to exactly, turn your nervous system down. And you're, uh, plyometrics. There is very little, if any, muscle damage being done with plyometrics. Uh, you might have some systemic inflammation, but not that much. You, you don't burn much energy at all when you're in plyometrics. Uh, so, so the only explanation is what makes it hard to recover from is that because you are creating CNS fatigue, because there's no metabolic or muscular fatigue. So those who can calm their brain down will have very little CNS fatigue from neurological work. So they can do it more often. Yeah, it's so awesome to see how all that stuff is related and how it comes full circle. What we talked about at the beginning of our talk today and then coming through at the end. But uh, that's that's all the time I have for uh, no the questions today, show today, Christian. But hey, thank you so much. I I, I feel I literally took a whole uh, page of notes here as you were going and just so many things to think about, especially uh, even having gone through the neurotyping system and, and working with athletes, but now even talking about the coaching and how it reflects in my coaching, it's just a game changer and changes everything. So thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Let's do it again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Glad to have you guys with us for this one. Again, This uh, the neuroscience, the neurotyping 
as far as I'm concerned, it is the biggest thing in the industry right now. And for me, it has offered the biggest wholesale change in the way I view, coach, and address athletes from a coaching and mental perspective. It's just huge. And so I, I really hope you're able to listen to this one, episode 77. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have Coach Christian Thibodeau on the show and that we can all be better because of it and that our athletes can have a better experience because of it because that's what it's all about. Also, his certification course is just pure gold as well. If you're interested in that, you can check it out. Uh, I did a review on it in the Just Fly Sports main page. Uh, you can use the code Just Fly Sports, um, all straight letters, straight lowercase, no dashes or anything uh, at the Thib Army uh, check out if you're going to get the full course you can get 15% off through that uh, discount code so that's something for you if you want to get into that so uh, again thanks for listening don't forget to visit our sponsor simplyfaster.com supplier of high-end training technology kbox gymwear free lap timing system which is my favorite timing system uh, just love that thing it's hard to imagine sometimes doing speed training without it so check them out uh, also, if you enjoyed the podcast, enjoy what we're doing here, please don't hesitate. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would totally appreciate it. And just kind of and just uh, helping us get info like this, like what Christian Thibodeau had to offer to the coaching masses and helping athletes everywhere have a better experience. We'll see you guys next week with episode 100. It's going to be an awesome roundtable, and we're excited to bring that to you.